February 28, 2010, lecture discussion number 15 on Zechariah 11, John 12, John 13, Matthew 26, 27, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Now, for all of you who follow along on iTunes, and I know there's many of you, and Podbean, whatever that is, I really don't know what either one of those are. I try to find them, and I don't find them correctly. I just know that they're in the hinter regions of computer newfangledom. But I do know there's a lot of you who are listening to me right now that aren't here in Anchorage, Alaska. Most of you do not live in Anchorage, Alaska, as surprising as that is. I hear I'm really big in Indonesia and Australia, though I'm not sure either one. But some of you don't tell the truth what you write. That's cool. I appreciate that more than you believe. Anyway, I know I don't know. I don't know how to find these folks, and I'm speaking to them now. I'm, I'm going to refuse to find you, frankly, because that requires that I understand how it works, and I cling to my eight by fourteen dry erase board here. I'm sorry, dry or my tablet. I did. Uh, Lori and I we were putting the uh, putting this new fan up in the house and we noticed that the new fan came with a fan dangle it did it makes perfect sense it really does what's a fan dangle yeah it dangles from the fan it's obvious and then you use it to turn the fan on and off so I I considered that great wisdom anyway welcome to all the people in new fan dangledom uh, to what we call here at Cliffside Community Chapel, and I'm stealing this from Nick. We're now calling this uh, Cliffside Community Chapel thing the Gifted Program. So welcome to the Gifted Program, not to be confused with the were you weird before you came to Cliffside or did Cliffside make you weird. Eventually, what we're going to plan to do for you folks out there in Newfangledom, Fandangledom, sorry, is we're going to capture the first ten minutes perhaps on some Sundays on YouTube and put them there. So then you'd find the rest of it at wherever you are. And that'll accomplish a couple of things for you. It'll show you the most holy dry erase board, platinum model, reversible, and its contents so that you'll see that. And it'll allow the residents of New Fandangledom to see some of our process here. I promise never to show you the audience. And naturally, if we ever get up on YouTube, you're going to have to have a warning to remove the small children and the horses because I frightened them both. And I do it intentionally. So ask around. Okay, here we go. Before we begin today, I'm, I should address some current events because I get asked about these whenever they happen. And that's specifically earthquakes. Louis called me today to tell me he wouldn't be there. Yes, sir. Can't hear me now? Too loud. Okay, cut me back some. Thank you. We have earthquakes all of a sudden. Too soft now? Okay. We have earthquakes, and they're in Haiti, and they're in Japan, and now they're in Chile, and a couple of weeks ago they were in Oklahoma. Now, I don't pay much attention to earthquakes in Chile or in Haiti or in uh, Japan, specifically Japan and Chile, not that big a deal. Haiti's starting to become a better, a more significant earthquake. Yes, sir. Did we have one in Big Lake last week? Okay, well, I don't bring Big Lake into, that's in Alaska. It doesn't count. 
Chile, lots of earthquakes. Japan, lots of earthquakes. Haiti, you know why you know there haven't been very many earthquakes in Haiti? Because if there did, they, they get wiped out because their buildings collapse. So Haiti's a big deal. Oklahoma is a big deal. When they're happening in Oklahoma, and Louie called me today and I said, Lou, um, if an earthquake goes off somewhere in Kansas, bring your family tonight, whether you're sick or not. And I'm half serious about that, because any discussion on earthquakes is important, because earthquakes are a sign. They are a sign. God specifically calls them a sign. And that brings us to Matthew 24, 3 through 8. And unfortunately, that's another place in Scripture that is sadly routinely butchered by those who specialize in selling books. Proving once again that the writing of books and the number of books sold bear no relationship to scholarship or learned, wise interpretation of the scripture. Frankly, it's the opposite of that. The more books they they sell, the more suspicious I am. The more books sold is often proof of error. Anyway, Matthew 24, 3 through 8 requires we revisit the seventh bowl judgment, Revelation 16, which is the great earthquake. There is going, right now we're just having, these are little tiny earthquakes, even though they're very destructive. We have no idea what that great earthquake of Revelation 16 is going to be like. We can't even imagine it. What does God do with that earthquake, the seventh bowl judgment? It comes on the heels of darkness, great darkness. It comes on the heels of all the other bold judgments. And it levels the mountains. He knocks every single mountain down. Now, when you're talking about leveling mountains, what do you immediately have to do? That's right, pointing Robertson effect and rates of erosion. And how old are the mountains? How many of you went there before I did? I don't blame you for not going there. How old are mountains? Well... If they had been there for a long time, we have erosion rates. And erosion rates, rain, snow, air, meteors, dust. We wouldn't have these sharp mountains, so we can all agree on at least mountains are young. And in any event, God intends to destroy them and level them with a great earthquake. It's the last of his seven bold judgments. And of course, whenever you're talking about earthquakes and mountains and all of that, you go to Ezekiel 38, because Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 17, all those Ezekiels, 48 for sure, we talk about the holy mountain that is God. Is the house of Jehovah. That is when he levels all of the mountains and sinks all the islands. He comes up with his mountain. It's 50 square miles. And on his great big mountain is what? Jerusalem, the house of, uh, house of Jehovah mountain is what it's called. But you go to Ezekiel 38 because I got world war and earthquakes. Earthquakes are signs. What are world wars? They're signs also. How many world wars have we had? Most historians will say we've had one. World War II is a continuation of World War I. That's what they will say. I won't argue with them. No other, most of you, I shouldn't say most of you, a lot of us were alive during world, those world war, that world war. My father certainly was alive. Okay, not a lot of you. I'm looking around better. 
I remember my dad talking to me about that World War time and how amazing it was. And everyone knew it was a sign. Everyone knew that there had never been in the history of man a world war. And so what did they expect to happen alongside the world war? And everyone, by the way, you had Hitler and Stalin doing what? Slaughtering Jews. Boy, if they didn't look like, they didn't look like uh, Antichrist himself, they certainly looked like Antichrist types, and they expected at any minute the rise of the Antichrist. And they certainly expected earthquakes to come, because earthquakes and world wars are sign are signs of the end of the age of the Gentiles. So that was a big topic then, and it kind of went away as the war went away. The world war did. But God likes earthquakes as signs. He placed one at his crucifixion, he opened graves, and he resurrected people, and they all ran into Jerusalem and testified. And how did that go? How many, how their witnessing go? It wasn't, didn't seem to be effective. I, I always wanted to get a video of that, see what, who those people were and what they said. But we should pay attention to earthquakes. An increasing frequency of earthquakes is very important to note. And we've had how many in the last 30 days that are significant? And if they keep going, folks, I, I mean, it's, it could be really, really crazy. Do I think that we perhaps are the generation that sees the signs of the end of the age? Uh, yes, I do. So let's go to 24, 3 through 14, and look at this really fast, since it's current events. And I know I'm supposed to get to John 13, and I will. But this is pretty important. Why is this important? Why am I doing it? Because you are the Cliffside Community Chapel gifted program, and what's that mean? That means tomorrow somebody's going to ask you about what? Earthquakes. They're going to say, what's the Bible have to say about earthquakes? People know, by the way, that the Bible talks about earthquakes as a sign. They know that. They don't know about world wars, but they know about earthquakes. And so when you go to work tomorrow, somebody's going to say, what do you think of those earthquakes? I promise you it's going to happen. So I'm going to try to get you ready. Then Jesus, well, I'll start at verse 3. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now that's the age of the Gentiles. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. What's he, what's he, why is he, that's God saying that. Why does he put that in there? Back to selling books. Somebody's going to deceive you. Chances are, if you've been in church your whole lives, you have been deceived already. And now my job is to hit you in the head with a shovel and clean it all up. Make sure no one deceives you. People are going to deceive you on this. What's their motive? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Do you know that the first person who ever declared himself to be the Christ was the Christ? There were no false Christ. There were no false messiahs. Nobody claimed to be the Messiah until the Messiah claimed to be the Messiah. Now what have we got? How many have we had since? We've got thousands of them now. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So when you see wars and rumors of wars, lots of little wars, bunch of wars, a whole bunch of little tiny wars, don't be worried. That's supposed to happen, and that has nothing to do with the end of the age of the Gentiles. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That is a Hebrew idiom, and it means what? World War. When you see a bunch of wars, no big deal. You see World War, pay attention. Because that is a sign that the end of the age of the Gentiles is about to come. Okay? Got that? And there will be famines. And this is where talking to my father was so amazing. is because he knew about all the famines. He saw the world war. Then he saw the Russian famine and all the other famines that came. And they were convinced, absolutely convinced, that at any second the Antichrist was coming. There will be famines, pestilences. Think about living in the 1915s. You had a world war. You had famine. You had the flu that was killing millions of people. What would you think? I got three signs, right? And there were and earthquakes. They didn't have earthquakes. They had world war. They had famine. They had pestilence. But earthquakes in diverse places are various places. And what that means is earthquakes in places that we just don't have earthquakes. By the way, do you want to move to Yellowstone Park? Let me just point this out. How come Old Faithful gushes up and it's hot? There's a huge volcano under them, baby. That's right. And they, they, one of these days, they think, boom. And that will... That'll produce some oceanfront property in Montana and Erie. Won't that be crazy? And I just just want you to know what the signs are. All these are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, these are the birth pangs of the tribulation. World war, famine, disease, earthquakes. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and become and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end of the tribulation shall be saved. Now, I added the end of the tribulation because that's where they deceive a lots of people. I have, I have my Bible, my expositor, and I, I'm arguing with him. What, are you an idiot? That's pretty much what I wrote. Because he did not know that that means, but he who endures to the end of the tribulation shall be saved if you're a Jew. That's what that means, by the way. doesn't mean that you have to, never mind, don't want to get bogged down. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end of the age of the Gentiles will come. Okay? This is God's answer, by the way, to verse 3. Jesus Christ, creator God, come in the flesh, answers the questions of verse 3. How many questions are there in verse 3? Let's go back. Tell us when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age of the Gentiles? What are these things? You go up. These things are the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So they had three questions. When will the Jerusalem temple be destroyed? When will you physically return as Messiah King on the Mount of Olives and rule Israel and the world as king, when will that happen? And when will the end of the age of the Gentiles be? Which is the same thing as asking what? When's the tribulation? Yeah. When's the tribulation going to end? So there's three questions. And in in order to not be deceived, it's really, all you really need to do is in order to arrive at the correct understanding of this passage is to know the questions and then properly correspond to Christ's answers. Now, many of you have had me discuss this with you before. I've done it before. I don't know what CD it is because I don't ever announce what the topics are until I'm about halfway through. Today's topic is on John 13. So far, we're not there. But most of you know that Jesus answers these three questions. First question, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? Second question, when will you return as Messiah King? Third question, when is the tribulation and the end of the age of the Gentiles? And Christ answers these questions. And he answers the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third. And if you know that, you're not going to have any problems here. That's why this is the gifted program. It really is easy. Easiest cake, piece of pie. It really is. Third question first, first question second, second question third. The disciples want to know, let me repeat it, when will the Jerusalem temple be destroyed? That's question number one, and he answers it second. When will Jesus, when will Christ return? When will he be revealed as God, as the I Am? When will you, they didn't know that by the way, but that's, that's what the revelation of Jesus Christ is about, revealing him as God, Creator God, Lord God Almighty, When will that happen? When will he return? That's question number two. And he answers that third. And and then the last one, when will the Gentile age that began in 586 with Nebuchadnezzar coming and sweeping through Jerusalem and taking the people into captivity, when will the age of of the Gentiles that started in 586 B.C., when will that finally end? That's question number three. And he answers that first. Now, if you keep that going, you're not going to get it just listening to me. But think next time you read this, or when you try to explain something to somebody, that he answers the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third. Okay? How easy is that? God's a mathematician, by the way. All his rules and laws are mathematical. That's another topic. So, obviously, once you know that, once you know that he answers the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third, obviously, Matthew 24, 4 through 26, that's his answer to when will the Gentile age end. That's the third question first. And you've got to, by the way, just to make it a little bit tougher for you, because after all, you are the what? The gifted program. You've got to go find Luke 21, 10, and 11, and you've got to find Mark 13, 8, because those are necessary pieces to all of this third question stuff. Anyway, I don't have time to repeat all of this again. I did, I done did it a couple of times before. But right now we got earthquakes. We've had world war. 
They were really worried about what this last year? Pestilence. As the economies of this country begin to disintegrate, and I've been having this discussion quite often, the United States is in a pretty good position. I know China and Japan have a bunch of our dollars, and the dollar is likely to collapse, and that would be really cool to watch. But we have something that nobody else has besides the most powerful military, and what's that? Food. Comes time to barter. Food becomes really cool. The Chinese would say, hey, pay up. You owe us a trillion, trillion and a half, whatever we owe them. And we can say, hey, a loaf of bread, by the way, is going up today, since you don't have any. It's probably handy if you had food. What did the Chinese have? Hundreds of millions of infantry soldiers. That, so this is a fascinating time to be alive. If you're a kid below the age of 40, that's who a kid is. If you're one of them, you're going to see some amazing stuff happen. Because right now, we've had world war. We've had pestilence. We were all worried about bird flu, swine flu, combination swine bird flu, right? One of these days, you're going to see all the signs. The famine, the, the pestilence, the earthquakes, and the world war. Okay, we right now, though, we have earthquake after World War. Nation against nation, as I said, means world war. War and rumors of war is everyday stuff. Humanity has been fighting amongst themselves for centuries since they were created, and they've been fighting. That's war and little tiny wars, rumors of wars. That's not a sign. But when it's world war, when it's nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, that's a sign. 1914 to 1945, World War. Kingdom and kingdom and nation and nation. Huge sign. When that comes, here's your sign. Thank you. Thank you in the back row for laughing. I really couldn't help myself with that. World War has only happened 1945. 1914 to 1945. Now, couple that with earthquakes in Oklahoma. The tribulation is near. It is very near. Get some perspective. I had somebody who shall remain nameless, but you can, you can figure out who it is. Tell me yesterday, as a matter of fact. They're not here, so now that will help you know who it is. Tell me in a fit of despair, I did not intend to have a mediocre life. I probably laughed for 25 minutes. I'm still laughing. (laughs) I did not intend to have a mediocre life. Well, guess what? Nobody else did either, but you got one just like the rest of us. I want the t-shirt rights to that. I really do. (laughs) <laughs> that, that is, who? that is almost per, perfect. That's perfection. Uh, perfect stupid. I mean, it's harder to, that is really amazing. Um, I would, I'm right, right now, I was telling Lori on the, on the way up here, I, I'm hoping for mediocre now. I mean, uh, I could just get a little mediocrity. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Anyway, my point is, is get some perspective. 
things are coming that are extraordinary. We live in an exciting time. We understand the book of Daniel. We have seen the rebirth of the nation of Israel. We know that there was a world war. We are watching earthquakes accelerate. In the last hundred years, the amount of earthquakes accelerating is extraordinary. I went through the 1964 earthquake. I'll never forget it. It was five minutes plus longer. Long. The one in Chile was 90 seconds. You were here, weren't you, Cindy? Yes. Five minutes. We had, we had conversations. We knew it was the Russians. I know you guys were here. It was amazing. It's hard to explain what that was. Now you know why we haven't had YouTube video for those of you who are listening to me. Because I remember... Uh, the Korean War. So I must be old and mediocre. Medi- me- me- I can't even say mediocrity anymore. I must have it, though. Anyway, I remember that earthquake. I'll never forget it. You never forget something like that. And my dad, you can imagine, he had just finished. He left the St. Louis, Missouri Pacific Railroad, where one of his jobs was is to put German prisoners of war on on in boxcars and ship them into uh, the Dakotas in Montana. I don't know for sure where they all went, but and he would talk to these guys. They were captured on the battlefield, uh, brought over to the United States, and shipped into camps in the Midwest. And he knew World War was a sign, and he knew earthquake was a sign. And now he's in um, the '64 earthquake with us kids. I was a kid. I was 20. No, I wasn't. I was 11, I think. But we were 12. We were talking about it, and he would say things like, This is an earthquake, an earthquake. World War earthquake. So, get some perspective. You have seen or know about both of those. And that five-minute earthquake is nothing compared to the great earthquake that comes. Let's look at the great earthquake that comes really fast so that you know about it. Because somebody's going to tell you this was a, that was a big earthquake. And you're going to say, oh, no. There's a big earthquake coming, baby. Here it is. Revelation 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is finished. That, by the way, is the third, it is finished. Of the four, it is finished. How many times does God say, it is finished? He says it four times. I'm going to take the position that he says it in Genesis was the most famous place. He says it is finished. On the cross, right? He says it here in Revelation 17, and he says it again in Revelation You find it. I'll help you. It's later. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. By the way, that isn't bad. That's remodeling. Because what does he intend to do with that? He intends to make that city... On a very high mountain, 50 square miles. 
Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the city of the nations fell, and the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Okay, how heavy is a talent? Between 50 and 75 pounds. That's a big rock. And it is a rock, by the way. God likes rocks. He throws rocks at people a lot. He did it when Joshua is uh, fighting in the promised land. They are in hand-to-hand combat. They are intertwined, struggling with knives, trying to strangle and kill each other. And the Jew always won. Do you know why the Jew always won? Because God hit the other guy with a rock. God is what? A good shot. A really good shot. And he's going to drop 75 pound rocks on people. By the way, he took out a giant with a rock, didn't he? And we'll talk about that a little bit later because that's called the Davidic typology. And that explains Judas and Satan. And that's where we're headed But he's going to hit people with rocks and there's a great earthquakes and all the rest of this great earthquake. All the rest of these are just little baby earthquakes to the point. uh, And I should say with the exception of the crucifixion earthquake, because that split the veil and resurrected people. But setting that aside, all the earthquakes we've witnessed are little baby ones because he's going to level the mountains. He does not like mountains. Every time somebody tells me I got a great view of the mountains. I kind of chuckled to myself. He don't like mountains. He isn't rid of them. He's devaluing your view. Take them all out. He wants one mountain. His. And that's where he will put his house of Jehovah or the house of the millennium or the temple of the millennium. God intends to have his mountain, the mountain of Jehovah's house. Okay? No other mountains. The highest mountain is going to have this temple. Now, this great earthquake, as I said, splits Jerusalem into three parts, home improvement, wipes out cities everywhere. Duh. It it shakes mountains to the ground. Who's going to live through this? Think about that. Who's going to live through 75 pound rocks falling on you, shot by somebody who's really accurate? Who's going to live? An earthquake that, that sinks every island and flattens every mountain. Who's alive? And then he decides he's going to focus on Babylon. And the Bible's very clear about this in Revelation. Christ has to come really fast now when this is all happening. How come? Because if he doesn't come really fast, what happens? Nobody's alive. No flesh lives. All the animals dead. All flesh perish. So when you put all the pieces together, you'll find this. When will the Jewish temple be destroyed? That's the first question. And the sign for that is that it will be surrounded by the Roman army. When you see an army surrounded, he tells them, that's the first sign of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Get out of Jerusalem. And most of them did. So when you see this siege come, 66 A.D. it came, Jerusalem fell 70 A.D., that's your first sign, and that's the sign of the fall of Jerusalem, and that's the first question. 
Then they asked, when is the second coming of Messiah? That's the second question. And after, he, he tells them, after the blackout and the great earthquake, the Shekinah glory will come. Bang, big light. The primal bolt of light, the first light of Genesis 1-3, will come again to the darkness. He's repeating the pattern. What he did in Genesis 1-3, he's going to do at the end of Revelation. It's going to be black, great earthquake, hailstones, bang, bright light. That's the sign that he's coming. So all you have to do is see that sign and you know, okay, made it. And if you make it through the end of the tribulation and you ain't a goat, you go into the millennium saved. You go into the all of eternity saved. If you persevere to the end. By the way, who's hunting you if you're in the tribulation and you're saved? The Antichrist. What's he want? He intends to behead you. How come he wants to behead you? You ever ask that? He likes beheading Christians. Why? Now, see, that's an interesting question. What did David do to Goliath? Beheaded him. Why? 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 What does beheading mean? Now, we get into all kinds of interesting discussions about soul, spirit, by the way. The immaterial and the material, the physical and the non-physical, the metaphysical. But anyway, I, div- I digressed. The primal bolt of light is shining in the darkness after the great darkness, after the great earthquake, after the hailstones. That's your sign that Jesus Christ is now physically come. That's him. That's the second question, and that is the second sign. When will the Gentile age end? That is the third question. That's the one he answers first. The sign for this is world war, kingdom and kingdom and nation and nation. That sign came 1914 to 1945, and then increasing earthquakes, that's your sign. And that's the third question, the third sign. And now all that together is third question first, first question second, second question third. And again, your friends are going to ask you tomorrow. They're going to ask you. I know they will. Somebody's going to say, hey, what did you think of the hockey game? And you're going to go, is hockey a sport? Not sure. Might be a sport. Maybe, maybe not. You know, it'd be a great sport, by the way, if we do what? Get rid of the goalie. Yeah. Now we got a sport. Get rid of that goalie. He's in the way. At least make the goal, you know, wider. As a joke, I watched this, by the way. It was a joke. The, the Russians got a 400-pound goalie. It made perfect sense to me. That's what I would have done as a coach. I'd get, I'd get some monster. Put those, and they did. They had to stop him. Stop him. He can't do that. You can't. The goalie can't take up the whole goal. Well, why not? Make the goal bigger. So there's my rule. When I get to be king, okay, I won't be king. I'll be prince. I'm changing hockey. Anyway, they're not going to ask you about the hockey game or the Olympics. They're going to ask you about all these earthquakes. People know. They do know. That Christians understand earthquakes. We know it's a sign. So they want to know, are we really in trouble? How many people right now are buying food? Lots of people. How come? Well, we expect all kinds of economic trouble, don't we? You can go on the internet now and buy food insurance. Man, that's unheard of. 
Think about that. Think about where we are. Somebody's out there going, there's a lot of scared people. And I can sell them food. Anyway, be prepared. People are on edge out there. And earthquakes scare them. Because earthquakes prove something to you. They prove to you that the ground that you're standing on is what? That earthquake in 1964 turned the ground under our house into water. Poof. Just liquefied everything. It was an amazing thing. And if you hadn't gone through it, you will never understand it. And if you get to go through it, you'll have an incredible thing to think about. So, let's start the sermon. But be prepared tomorrow for talking about earthquakes. Okay. Previously, the last couple of Sundays, we've been working our way through the lists of John 12 and John 13. And this is John 13 on the board. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew 26 adds to this. So does Matthew or Mark 14. And last Sunday, we kind of crossed off a few of them. Uh, the do quickly. I took on the do quickly. I got somebody gave me this. This is really cool. I kind of took that out a little bit, and we, we dealt with it. Well, we'll put a, a little check mark next to it. And the no one knew. We dealt with that. We talked about the piece the previous week, the piece of bread, the first piece of bread. Jesus troubled. We kind of got into that, but not really. We'll do that really right now, as a matter of fact. And we haven't really touched the money box, but that's coming next week. So the quickly, not completely, but mostly, made the Matthew 4.10 connection with the quickly, if you remember. Because at the end of Matthew 4, after Christ has this conflict with Satan, he says, depart to him. Leave quickly, essentially. Depart immediately. And that's exactly what he says, or very close to what he says to Satan and Judas. So you see the Matthew 4.10 connection, the depart command, and Satan and Judas going into darkness. But we didn't exactly resolve perfectly, specifically, what it was that they're supposed to do. Do it quickly. What you do, do it quickly. And they left because they have no choice but to leave. Because why? They get commanded by God to depart and they leave. But what is it that they want to do? What are they trying to accomplish? What's really cool about that is that they, they couldn't do it slowly. How come they couldn't go slowly? Why didn't they drag their feet? Because they're dealing with Christ, and Christ, as we should always expect, is doing something. He's controlling time. See, remember, he is the creator of time. He is the creator of what's called the created order, and that is space and matter and energy and time. And it's important that all Christians know the difference, by the way, since we're now into space and matter and energy and time, that you know the difference between nothing and nothing. Christians have a tendency to confuse nothing with nothing. They don't know they're nothings. You have to know your nothings. You may not understand what nothing is, but you need to understand what nothing is because the evolutionary atheists always take advantage of the fact that Christians don't know the difference between nothing and nothing. And we should be ready to explain the difference. Tomorrow, when you go to work or go out wherever you go, you could say, okay, earthquakes are a sign, world wars are a sign, we've got an earthquake in Oklahoma, one shows up in Montana, might be time to come to the gifted program, bring food. But we also, that's your opportunity to tell them, hey, listen, do you know the difference between nothing and nothing? Because how many kinds of nothing is there? 
Let me ask you that. I'll give you a hint. People can't see us here. So everybody says, there's two kinds of, very good. Everybody in the whole room knew exactly how many kinds of nothing there were. You are so smart. And those people that listen by CD and in pod, fangledom dean or whatever it is, they didn't know. There's two different kinds of nothing. Very important. And I'm stealing this from a, a distinguished physicist, theologian, professor named Edgar Andrews. I'm stealing what he calls them. He calls the two, the two nothings void zero and void one. And so very important to know that there's two kinds of nothing. What's the two kinds of nothing? Do you know? I'll help you. There's a pre-creation in eternity. Have you ever seen me do this? I've been doing it for years. I don't have a pencil. I mean, I don't have a coin. But I always say, do you have a coin, dear? Oh, hang on. I have a breath mint. People give me breath mints. Never turn down a breath mint. Or body deodorant. Somebody comes up to you and says, here, take it. Let's be on that. Toothbrushes. If somebody gives you toothbrushes and runs away, take it. This is the universe. Now, this will work. You can see the universe. It's kind of a... That's the universe in God's hand. He's watching the universe. There it is, the universe. We think the universe is really big. But when he sees it, I'm trying to give you perspective. There's the universe swirling around. He's watching it. It's called symmetry. He's, he's a mathematician, God is. He likes symmetry. Symmetry is when I spin a cue ball and it does not show any wobble or anything. It's in symmetry. And so I have this motion and it's moving around. What's the obvious question? There's the universe moving around. What's the obvious question? What's it moving around in? What's on the outside of the universe? And what's the answer? Nothing. That's called pre-creation eternity. And that's versus the physical vacuum that's inside the universe. See, there's a vacuum inside the created order. The created order, again, is space, matter, energy, and time. And inside space, matter, energy, and time, what word have I just repeated that's mostly called nothing? Space. So I have created nothing, and I have pre-creation nothing, or eternity. You have to know the difference between your nothing. They will tell you that there is nothing inside of the created order. That's true. But you have to be able to define what nothing is. What is nothing inside the created order? What's nothing made out of inside the created order? Is this making any sense to anybody? You have to know. There's nothing inside the created order, and there's nothing in the pre-creation eternity. Jesus Christ is the creator of the created order. That's supposed to be, you need to know that. That's John 1.3. Defining nothing is critical knowledge. Knowing that there's two kinds of nothing and the differences between the nothing, that's essential. Okay, more on that later. Don't know why I did it, but I just thought I should. Whoo, that's really cool. Look at that. I've been trying to push that back and retract it. This must be one of your gadgets, huh, John? Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's mine now. You'll never get it away from me. Look what it does. Cool. Try it here. Yeah. Anyway, 
More of that later. It's a key element, by the way, defining nothing to any discussion on Christ and Judas. And I'll get to that as the weeks go by. But something that's going to keep you on the path with respect to Judas is Davidic typology and the 1 Samuel 3, 13, 14 typology. I'm sorry, prophecy. So we're going to talk about Judas being entered by Satan. Where is that? I don't have it on the board. Satan enters him. Oh, right here. Satan enters Judas. Now, why does Satan wait for the piece of bread before he enters Judas? I asked you that question last week. That's very important. And the way we find this out, why did Christ give him the piece of bread? What is it about Judas and Christ that Christ would give him the first piece of bread at a Passover meal, at any banquet meal? And 1 Samuel 13, 14 explains that, the Davidic prophecy. Uh, it's a very mysterious, complex prophecy uh, passage, aren't they all, by the way? And it says this, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. God wanted David to be king. Israel wanted Saul to be king. God chose David to be king. It's a long story. don't have time to do it. But he sought after David because David had the same heart as God. Now, what does that mean? Because David did what? David murdered people. David was an adulterer. David looked like a slime bucket to most people. That's the most powerful one, isn't it? Okay, now I know. Emphasis. How is it that David, the adultering murderer, had the same heart as God? What is it about David that has anything to do, because David's typology, David's prophecy is coming into play right here in John 13. And as I said, it's a very mysterious prophecy passage. What about David? It certainly wasn't the murdering. It certainly wasn't the adultering. He conducts a census and gets a bunch of people killed over that because he leaves out the atonement money. So it certainly isn't have anything to do with his doctrine. What is it about David that God said, this is my guy? And as I said, Israel demanded a human king, 1 Samuel 8. They rejected the Shekinah glory. God was on the throne inside the, the tabernacle of Moses. He was in the Holy of Holies. They could see the light from the Shekinah glory. And they said, we want a human king. And they wanted Saul. And Saul is described specifically one way. How? Handsome. Not just handsome, he is the most beautiful human in all of Israel. He is the most handsome man, and that's who they wanted. And they've said that, by the way, in our political elections. Really hard for ugly people to get elected anymore. That's good news for me. Because I never really wanted to enter politics. I wanted a more mediocre life. Never mind, but I'm going to be beating on that for a long time. You can tell when they're here because I won't say it. Okay, I will. I can't help myself. Saul is the handsomest, the most beautiful of all of Israel, 1 Samuel 9, 2. He's also the tallest. We like, since we have television, we like attractive leaders. We want attractive people to run things. And that's really a shame because we all know that attractive people have gotten through their lives. And this is a moment of seriousness now. They've gotten through their lives, the super attractive, having people blow smoke at them their whole time. And they never learn anything about lives. 
They never learn anything. They just get by. We worship them. We make celebrities out of them, even though they're brain damaged. Not literally. Okay, literally. I'm not, I'm not fond of the Hollywood stuff. It's, it's a con game. Israel, and it's old, Israel wanted the tallest, most beautiful man they could get. And they chose Saul, and they rejected God, and God chose David. Saul is tall, and he's beautiful. What do we now know about Judas? He's tall, and he's beautiful. And the rest of the this apostles, disciples, naturally submitted to him because of his beauty and because of his physical stature. God chose David. What do we know about David? And he looked at what? He looked at his heart. Human beings, we, and by the way, that's God's domain. Only God truly knows the heart. That's his domain. We don't get to know that. We look at what? We look at the outside. He looks at the inside. It's as simple as that. God's domain is the metaphysical, is the spiritual. He would expect that, right? He would look at the spiritual aspect of David. Humanity looks at the physical Okay, so what do we now know about David? Because God chose him. He had God's heart. And what else was he? Short and ugly. And a shepherd went around chasing after sheep. That's his job. As Bill likes to say, I can't repeat it enough because we have people who are now listening for the first time. Hundreds of you out there. It's astonishing how many are listening compared to how many are here. Dingleberries in the back and mucus in the front, right, Bill? That's a sheep. And that's what David did. And that's what God wanted him for. He wanted a short, little, ugly guy. And Israel wanted the opposite. Now you add Absalom, David's third son, and he's described in 2 Samuel 4, 25 through 26. Both of these, Saul and Absalom, are both types of who? The Antichrist, therefore Judas, very good from the front row. And Absalom is also described, 2 Samuel 14, 25, 26, as beautiful. Actually says he has no physical blemish. Oh, the clock has stopped, hasn't it? Okay, I'm still good. i got five minutes. I can see everybody's looking at the clock. Do I take that personally? Oh, yeah, a little. But I'm planning on how to get to the Kentucky Fried Chicken right now. That's what I'm doing because I'm down to that six, seven minute mark. David's third son, Absalom. Beautiful. No physical blemish, it says of him. He had long flowing hair and everywhere he went, people praised him for his appearance. Same as Saul. And both of them had something in common. What is that? They both wanted to do what? They both wanted to murder who? They both wanted to kill the shepherd king. They both wanted to kill the one whom God had set up as a type of Christ, as the shepherd king, as the ruler of Israel. Both Saul and Absalom plot to kill David, and both are slain. Saul, by his own sword, Absalom is speared while he's hanging. And now that tells me one of the Judas is going to die two ways. Hanging and the sword. Okay? Does Judas die by hanging yet? 
Yes. Does he ever die by the sword? Yes. He does. See how the typology fits? Where does he die by the sword for those who don't know? First one killed, battle Armageddon, by what? The sword. Sword of Christ. And David, when they both died, saw by his own sword, Absalom speared while hanging. By the way, a guy lies about killing Saul. That doesn't work out so good for him. You can read the story. David doesn't believe him. It's a bad idea to lie to God or a type of God. David deeply, by the way, grieves for both of these. And he has heavy, heavy mourning. See, right here. David has heavy, deep, grieving trouble. He had no joy in the death of those who hate him. That is the heart that God was after, because that is who? That is the heart of God. That is why God, that is why Christ weeps in Gethsemane, not for himself, always for the ones who seek to kill him. Great, great mourning he has. Greatly troubled. Horribly saddened. And David is the same way. God's shepherd king David is chosen by God because of his anguish over the deaths of his enemies. That's David's spiritual condition. That's not his physical condition. And let's talk about that. I've got a short little ugly guy. And he's a kid. He's a small kid, really. They describe him. They put the, they put the armor on him. He's going to go out and kill who? Goliath. They put the armor on him. He can't even move. We picked the shortest, tiniest kid, and he's ugly, and he's going to kill the Nephilimic, mutated, giant Goliath. What a great plan. And Saul sends him out to do it because David says, yeah, I can do this. And Saul says, why can you do it? And he says, what? I took a lamb out of the mouth of a lion, and the lion didn't like that much, and the lion did what to me? It attacked me, and what did I do? I killed it. How did he kill it? With his bare hands, he just hit it and killed it. Okay. You killed a lion with your bare hands with one blow. You took the lamb. Okay, tomorrow, for something to do, Go take a lamb out of a lion's mouth somewhere, and if it isn't happy, hit it once and kill it. He not only did it to a lion, he did it to a bear. And Saul said, do it. Go. He took off all the armor, and this very small, ugly Jewish man had supernatural strength. And he, he has to throw a rock through, the, through Goliath's helmet, and then he lifts Goliath's sword... And he cuts off Goliath's head, and he takes it back, and Christ makes sure that he's crucified on top of that skull, right? Goliath's skull. How does David kill a lion? How does he rip the sword? How does he cut off Goliath's head? And you see this small, ugly Jewish man with supernatural strength, and you say, Samson. Same story, isn't it? 
Saul knew the Samson story and he saw it again. I guarantee you he did. But for today, I want you to look at the anguish, the deeply troubled characteristic of David, his mourning for those who hate him. He called Saul something all the time. When the man comes and lies to David about killing Saul, David has him killed and he says this, How dare you say you killed the anointed Saul? And I'd expect Saul to be called the anointed, wouldn't I? How come? Because of Ezekiel 28. Who said that? Thank you. That's very good. Very good for those of you who got to Ezekiel 28. The anointed Saul. Do not lie about killing. How, how do you even talk about God's anointed Saul? What does that remind you of? That's right. Jude 9. Michael. Fighting Satan over the body of Moses. I want you to compare all of that to John 13:21, And that helps you answer why Jesus was deeply troubled. Why is Jesus deeply troubled? Same reason every time. He loves the people that hate him and want to kill him. How many is that, by the way? Billions. Now, why did Judas Satan wait until the bread of love, friendship, and honor was given? You know, because Satan could have gone inside of Judas and then Christ gave him the sop, this, this first piece of bread at the banquet table, this bread, this first piece that is a demonstration of great love, special friendship, and high honor. He gives back to Judas because it was true, just like it was true for David. And they waited until that was over. Why did they wait? What's the obvious answer? They wanted to wait. They wanted the sop to be given to Judas without Satan inside of him. And they also had to know it was coming. Covered that last week. This is a special act and it would also be the very last time it was done. And they knew that. Why did Judas do it? It's an act of great love, great friendship, great honor, and it deeply troubles Christ. And there's your answer, right? What does it mean to Judas and Satan to get that? I gave you the answer, didn't I? Yes, I did. See you next week. Musicians, come forward. Let's rise and be dismissed. And yes, I can see the chicken from here. Let's make this as fair as we possibly can. Oh, is it popcorn?